0: Human resources, employee relations, the legal department are aligned against you. Your employer has trained for this day, the day you've become an expendable number at work. There are robust laws that may protect you, but unlike the company, you've not been drilled on how to wield them. You're playing catch up. There are pitfalls to avoid and countermeasures to deploy that may save your job or put you in the best position to negotiate a favorable settlement minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. The Walking Papers podcast offers the first foray into learning how to turn the tables when you've been targeted at work. Knowledge is power. Let's get started.
1: Hi, how are you? So this is your first time getting body waxed?
2: Yes, yes it is. Take off your shirt. Oh, we're gonna need more wax! Clear all my appointments in the
0: afternoon. him. No! Kelly Clarkson! Three, three,
2: mm. ah! <laughs> Welcome to the Walking Papers Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Ingalls, and I'm here with attorney Josh Van Campen of the Van Campen Law Firm. Today's episode is titled The EEOC. Would you like a pedicure to go along with that facial? Why Employers Get the Spa Treatment and You are Steve Carell in 40-Year-Old Virgin. Hello, Josh. Hey, Rob. All right, so take us through that title. You always title them very well. Tell us about
1: that. Yeah, I remember one time being at the EEOC during a mediation and looking at the nice light blue paint on the walls and thinking how relaxing this is. And then my experience in practicing before the EEOC in Charlotte here since 2004, is that it's sort of like a splash treatment i do not think that employers walk through the door at the eoc with even an ounce of trepidation about what might happen to them and that's a shame because this is an agency whose job it is is to enforce the uh, civil rights laws in our nation but at least my experience in north carolina is quite the opposite and i have literally had clients of mine who have described their interactions with the EEOC as being excruciating sometimes. And Steve Carell, maybe that's a little over the top. (laughs) He was in a lot of pain, but all the same, it's not been pleasant for a lot of my clients. And and there are some exceptions. In fact, there are some excellent investigators that I have dealt with at the EEOC in North Carolina, but they're a minority. And so I'm gonna describe what to expect from the EEOC in reality in North Carolina, And then some of this will translate, obviously, nationwide, but I'm going to be focusing in particular what to expect in the North Carolina EEOC. Sure.
2: So if it's as terrible as you say, why should I be filing with them to start with? Because you have to. That's a good answer. That would
1: be the only reason (laughs) you would ever go through this process. So there's something, a legal term for it is exhaustion. There's an exhaustion requirement that in order to pursue claims in court under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act or the Americans with Disabilities Act or Age Discrimination Act, you have to go through this government agency process first. At the conclusion of which, you get something called a right to sue letter, which is your ticket into the courthouse. We'll have a totally different podcast about what happens in the courthouse, but we'll describe what happens in the CEOC process today.
2: Gotcha. So is there a perfect time to file? When should I be thinking about this?
1: So think about all those commercials where they say, act now, 1999, (laughs) and you get a free widget. Right, Um, as long as you do it in the next 12 minutes. Yeah, exactly. So folks should act now, as far as I'm concerned. If something has happened that you think is discriminatory, file right away.
2: Now, is there a a time frame? Like, can I wait too long?
1: You can definitely wait too long. In fact, the statute of limitations is very short under Title VII, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the Age Discrimination Act. You only have 180 days from the discriminatory act to file with that agency, 180 days. And be careful, folks, that you don't get tripped up on when to start counting that 180 days. So let's say in a scenario where you are informed of your termination on a Monday, but you're not fired until Friday. When you're counting your 180 days, you count it from the day that you learned of the discriminatory act, not when they stopped paying you. So in that instance, we're counting 180 days from that, that Monday. And then it gets a little bit more complicated. Well, I have some good news for folks that have, live in states where there is a Human Affairs Commission. In that instance, there's a 300-day limitation period. Be very careful. You know, you're going to want to research your state law to see if there's a state agency, in which case there's 300 days to do that. But there's going to be folks that are also confused and saying, well, what about sexual harassment cases? So there's lots of incidents over a period of time. When do my 180 days start counting? And I would say conservatively, you want to start counting from the date of the first incident. Worst case scenario, you can file within 180 days of the last incident. But then you're kind of in a pickle because now we're having to argue to a court or the EEOC. Now you need to look back even further because it's what's called a continuing violation to say it's a pattern. And so we can look back further than that 180-day cutoff, but we don't want to be arguing that. Right, It's it's a more
2: difficult position. Is that what you're saying?
1: Exactly. Right.
2: Now, let's say that I haven't gone to the EEOC, but I filed an internal complaint with the company. I let my manager know, I let HR know. Does that change anything? Does that do anything with the federal deadline?
1: No. And your employer will never tell you that. So you'll read your employee handbook and it'll say, oh yeah, you should file a complaint with us and we'll investigate it internally. That internal investigation has nothing to do with the EEOC process. So in legal terms, that's called tolling. You know, does that your filing of the internal complaint toll your deadline? It doesn't. You're stuck with that 180-day deadline. So don't don't get all caught up in an internal complaint process because it has nothing to do with your 180-day deadline. And spoiler alert, your internal investigation is going to find that nothing wrong happened. I think maybe once in my career it it was the other way, and I I was like, I'm buying a lottery ticket. Yeah. Because it never, it never happens. Yeah. So be careful about that internal complaint process. Don't get distracted from your federal deadline.
2: Yeah, we've talked about that before on the podcast. HR is generally not on your side.
1: Yeah. We gotta. We let's do another one. Isn't it it fun to just beat up on HR? All
2: right. So we figured out that we have to file. No, you know, really, no other way to do it. How do we go about doing that?
1: What I like my folks to do and what we do here at the law firm, when, you know, when we're not in a pandemic where you're not allowed to do it anymore, is to uh, file in person. So you can uh, research the EOC has district offices, which are regional. And then within districts, there are offices, regional offices where you can go. And so you can literally walk into these government agencies and say, hey, I'm here to file a charge and they will sit you down with an intake person and they will work with you to prepare your chart now be careful because the investigator that you're interviewing with probably doesn't really want you to file that charge and this is another spoiler alert that the EEOC is just pushing these things for the most part so do not get talked out of filing your EEOC charge by somebody at the eoc because they have their own agenda in terms of their numbers Um, And so be careful, go down there and file. But remember, the EEOC only cares about discrimination. So if you're walking in there and you're saying, you know, my supervisor was unfair to me ever since, you know, so-and-so, I didn't buy them a donut and I bought donuts for everybody else. She hated me. EEOC is going to say, I don't care. Should have bought her a donut. (laughs) (laughs) That's on you, right? Don't be such a cheapskate. (laughs) Now, I imagine if You
2: try to make the argument, if you've missed your deadline, and you try to make the argument, oh, well, the EEOC investigator talked me out of it, that's probably a tall hill to climb.
1: It is. And uh, in fact, you would have a very difficult time compelling that investigator to testify. And no lawyer is going to touch that case, because we don't want to be dealing with that. Discrimination case is hard enough to begin with. Right. So that's one way, is in-person
2: all right. So we can file in person. And then it sounds like you said, but because of COVID right now, we're not allowed to do that. So I assume there's an online option.
1: Yeah, there, there's something called the EEOC portal. Or, and if you just Google, how do I file an EEOC charge, you're going to you know, get put right into the EEOC's website where you can find the location that you can file in person. They also have something called the EEOC portal where you will input information and then that will prompt somebody from the EEOC to contact you now be careful, because your completion of that preliminary information in the EOC portal is not any EOC charge, folks. That is you just providing information for an investigator to call you back. So your 180 days that didn't move the needle. You didn't do anything at that point. If you do the EOC portal route and the EOC reaches out to you at that point to interview you, this is once again where it's important that you talk about discrimination. Don't make this about unfairness and be ready to explain what happened and to back up your claim. And it's at that point that the EEOC personnel are supposed to work with you to actually facilitate the completion of the form. So that's the EEOC portal process. And then you can also file via email. I'm not going to give an email address right now because just in case it changes. Right. But if you call your EEOC regional office, and say, hey, I'd like to file a charge. They do accept charge filings by email as well. But me personally, I like the idea of going down there, completing it, getting it file stamped, got it in your hands, take it home. That's the safest way to do it.
2: All right, while we're still on this, you did say you wanna talk about discrimination. Is there anything else you need to be thinking about saying or perhaps not saying?
1: Well, in the EEOC charge form, so remember, the EEOC is looking to determine whether or not they have jurisdiction. So the EEOC form that you're ultimately going to sign is going to have boxes. There's going to be a box for sex discrimination, race discrimination, religious, national origin, disability, age. So you got to check the boxes so that the EEOC sees that it has jurisdiction. And don't be picky on these boxes. So down the line, your lawyer, may there may be three different kinds of discrimination going on. And if you only check one, your lawyer is going to have a hard time arguing new theory in the future. So if you're over 40 or African-American and you're female, I would recommend checking all those boxes. And then later at trial, we'll probably whittle it down to maybe one primary theory. But at the EOC, you know, we want to take a Broadnet, net. Sure. to Broadnet.
2: All right, so we've talked about how to file. Now that I've filed, what happens next?
1: It's just downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> so the charge will be sent to the, the employer. And as I said, the employer's heartbeat will very likely just stay nice and steady. And then they'll be given two options at that point. One is they can participate in the EOC's mediation program, which is ding, 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 a good thing for us. Or they can say, I don't want to mediate, I want to defend this, and then it gets moved on over to the investigation unit. So we're going to focus on the investigation process, but just real fast on this EEOC mediation process, good news is it's free. So normally in, in private mediation, you have to pay the mediator. Here, the EEOC will provide one. And if you filed a charge and your employer agreed to mediation, that's a good sign. You know, they probably are interested in exploring settlement. And then you're wondering, well, do I need a lawyer at this mediation? And I can tell you your employer's going to have one, so you should. (laughs) I mean, you can go in, but I I tell you, you're going to do better, I think, on the numbers if you're represented. And they'll take you more seriously if you show up to mediation with a lawyer. Yeah, so get one.
2: Yeah, and I assume, you know, in general, the lawyer's probably going to have a much better idea of what your options are, what the law states. And get you a better deal. And what your case is
1: worth. Right. I mean, you don't know, but your lawyer will have a good sense for what it's worth. Sure. I would say about 50 to 60% of charges result in a mediation at the EOC. But remember, you're not obligated to take a deal. So if they're offering you a shit deal, the EOC mediation, don't take it. Just let it go on down to that investigation process and play it out. But if it's, you know, a lot of times I tell my clients, if it's, you know, that you were fired three months ago and they're already offering you pretty decent money at the EOC mediation, a lot of times the right call is to take it, but don't take a bad deal. Right. Then if you don't take it, it goes down to this investigation process we're going to talk about.
2: Now, you said, so there was mediation and then from mediation, they go to investigation. What does that process look like?
1: All right. So the charge gets mailed to the employer like we talked about at that time they're required to submit what's called a position statement so you your opening salvo was that EEOC charge which is going to contain your factual allegations and now the company is going to submit a position statement which is its defense you are entitled to get a copy of that position statement at least in North Carolina and so wherever you are in the nation if you're listening to this you want to get a copy of that EEOC charge position statement so that you can respond to it and you do have the right to respond to it. But guess what the EOC sometimes does? Sometimes they get a position statement, they read it, and they say, hmm, that sounds pretty good to me. I don't see anything there, you know. So (laughs) (laughs) we'll just let this one go, you know, no need to investigate it. So I've been watching Fargo, so that's why. I go to the Minnesota accent there, but um,
2: I was wondering why we made a, that was a very particular style choice.
1: I've been doing this the last 30 <laughs> days, but um, yeah. So anyway, that's, that's usually that can happen. And it's really frustrating because the plaintiff didn't even get a chance to respond to it. So get your position statement. Then uh, you want to submit a rebuttal. Usually the EOC investigator will either want to interview you, in which case do your homework I would prepare an outline of what you anticipate wanting to say in response to the position statement, or if the investigator prefers, they may ask you to submit a a written rebuttal.
2: Now, in this rebuttal process, I know every time I'm talking, I need to be thinking about what I am, what I should and shouldn't be saying. Is there any landmines I need to be avoiding during this process?
1: Yeah, so be careful with this uh, interview with the EEOC investigator. So. Most EEOC investigators are interviewing with a goal in mind of moving that charge off their desk. So if they can get you to say some damaging things in response to their questions, then they just said, okay, this one's off my desk. So it's a shame. But even when I'm on the call with counsel, I'm, you know, as counsel with my client and they're being interviewed... There have been times where it was so obvious that the EEOC investigator was trying to trip my client up that I interjected, and then they say, "Oh, Josh, we're not here to interview you. I'm here to interview your client, and I'm saying no, you're here to trip up my client." And that's what's so frustrating. That's not their job. Their job is to investigate and enforce. And I, I'm sad, sad to say that that's that's not what most people encounter. So that's the position statement rebuttal process, and then at that point. Most EEOC investigators will stop investigating. And I use investigator in air quotes because some of them just read. They'll read the position statement. They'll read your rebuttal and will not lift a finger to do anything else to investigate. So how in the world, you know, like you just got fired. You don't have access to personnel files, to documents, to other people's emails. You are coming to the table with a minimal amount of evidence most of the time. The EEOC has these wonderful tools. They can conduct what's called a fact-finding conference where they require the relevant decision-makers to show up to be interviewed. They can go on-site to the employer and, and, and interview the alleged harasser or the manager or so forth, witnesses. They can ultimately subpoena documents and personnel files and information. But in nine out of 10 cases, the investigator won't use any of those tools. And that's why you might call them readers, some of them instead of investigators. So
2: after this investigation has come to a conclusion, what's the next step, what happens?
1: Well, for literally uh, 95% of charges that are filed, the EOC will issue what's called a no-cause finding. So a no-cause finding means that they have quote unquote investigated and determined that there is no cause to believe that your rights were were violated. Don't take it personally, folks. I mean ninety five percent. Ninety five percent of people get that. In fact, one of my strongest cases against a local bank where a conservative federal district court judge in the Western District in Nashville called the case direct evidence, which is the strongest kind of evidence you could possibly have. But the investigator at the EEOC wasn't good enough for her. Right. But it was good enough for a conservative federal district court judge. And that's why the EOC is so picky and so demanding with what you're supposed to marshal is that in evidence. That's why only 5% of these charges are ever found to uh,
2: have merit. So it sounds like it doesn't change your ability to pursue
1: the case after. Right. We don't care. As lawyers, we don't care if the EOC is going to issue a cause finding or not. And when we do, we literally like let's go get drinks everybody. (laughs) We literally would celebrate. I would call my other plaintiff lawyer, lawyer friends in town and say, believe it, you know what happened? I got a cause finding and and they will say bullshit. (laughs) But, and so it's remarkable when it happens. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So now with everything else in law, there's a time limit. What's the time limit after you get this letter?
1: So it's 90 days from the date that you received your right to sue letter. Once again, you got to remember when you received it. So if you if you got it and you didn't write it on the envelope like received on this date, and then you wait more than 90 days, you're in a pickle about saying, well, but I received it on such and such a date you don't know. So write the date you received it on your envelope. The law is going to assume it took three business days to get to you. So if you don't remember when you got it, assume three business days from the date it was mailed and you'll be able to see no when it was mailed because the EEOC envelope will have a postmark stamp. Usually it's on the upper right hand part of the envelope. Sure. All right. So
2: 95% are no cause generally. Tell us about that 5%. What's the significance of a cause finding? I know it's exciting, but past that.
1: It's rare, but most of the time it's meaningless. So what happens if you get a cause finding? The employer is going to be required to participate in what's called a conciliation. So a conciliation is sort of like a mediation, but it's not with a trained mediator. Your investigator is going to try to conciliate a settlement between the parties. And at that point, you know, you do have more leverage because the employer counsel is going to be like, wow, a cost finding. <laughs> so then your management lawyer is going to be like, Ooh, this might not be good for court. And so you you do see more settlements in the conciliation process, but the employer can also tell you to pound sand. They don't have to settle if they don't want to. So if the conciliation fails, it fails. Most of them do. And then at that point, the issue is, well, the EEOC has a legal department and the EEOC has the option of actually taking the case as a plaintiff. And then you are what's called an intervener. And so we just had a, a trial here in the Western District uh, this past year, where we were representing our client, the intervener, and the EOC was a party, and we were grateful for the cause-finding and, and for our EEOC trial attorney teammates, but the EOC rarely, 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 their legal department rarely takes a case. In fact, I was uh, looking at the most recent data, and out of 76,000-some charges, the EOC legal department in the last fiscal year filed 200. <laughs> So just to give you an idea, my little law firm, I haven't counted it exactly, but we probably filed, let's just say 25, right. 200 Yeah. for the whole nation. And they've got an army of lawyers. I mean, come on. Yeah. And so this gets to the frustration that I have, that my clients have with this agency, with all this money and good investigators too. And you know who you are. If you're listening to this, <laughs> don't be mad at me. And then for the other ones who, who have just done violence, in my opinion, to the law and, and how they've, the standard that they applied to my clients and other workers, I, I sure hope it changes. It's one of the reasons why I'm being so bold in calling this out because it has to change. Yeah.
2: All right. We have covered a lot of ground today. Thank you for your time, Josh. And thank you for spending a few minutes with us, listener.
0: Congratulations for taking an important initial step in turning the tables at work. But this podcast is just an educational resource. It does not constitute legal advice and is no substitute for consulting an employment attorney about your unique situation before making legal decisions. Visit our website for more online resources and videos at ncemploymentattorneys.com, Or better yet, call 704-247-3245 for a free initial intake interview so Van Camp Campen Law can evaluate your case. Until next time, keep your head up and your wits about you.